And we welcome you to the Wednesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Bird, and on the day before Thanksgiving Day, I am thankful for the opportunity uh, to reconnect with Steve Rogstead. And he has certainly been a uh, important and uh, frequent morning show guest over the years uh, because of his extraordinary expertise when it comes to our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, the specific reason for Steve Rogstad's visit this time around is the publication of a new book that Steve has just authored called Lincoln Among the Badgers, Rediscovering Sites Associated with Abraham and Mary Lincoln in Wisconsin. This is a big book and a beautifully crafted book, which is chock full of uh, extraordinary uh, and, and revelatory information about Lincoln, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln, and the many connections which uh, they have with the state of Wisconsin. And uh, I appreciate the meticulous care with which Steve Rogstead has researched and prepared this book and uh, I'm very excited for this opportunity to speak with him. Steve Rogstead, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thank you, and I'm, I'm more excited than you are to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. But at any and that's rate, true. That is true. We'll call it a tie, but I'm so glad that we, can, uh, that we can talk. Before we talk about Abraham Lincoln's connection to the Thanksgiving holiday, I wanted to mention the fact that um, I had the great opportunity uh, several summers back to visit Springfield, Illinois, and to visit Abraham Lincoln's home there, and uh, also the, 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 the beautiful museum that is also in the heart of downtown Springfield, Illinois. And I have to say that it is it, it felt really important to do that as an American, and, uh, and it's something that I would really hope uh, every American would seriously consider doing. Can you just say a word about the importance of, of, of every American, if they possibly can, to make their way to Springfield, Illinois, and what they can see there? Well, it's, it's, it's the epicenter for anything Lincoln, obviously, although he was in Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois. You know, Springfield is where he spent his entire adult life for the most part, and that's where he shaped his career and, and became the Lincoln that, that we know him as before he went to the White House. So you, his home is there, his tomb is there, um, his presidential library now is there, the people that he left uh, to go to Washington on the, on the train is there, his law offices are there, the old state house where he practiced as a legislator uh, is there. It's all there. And, uh, you know, I always say Abraham Lincoln was really the Billy Graham of American democracy. So if you want to understand our nature, our style of government, and you want to know why we revere him, you have to understand that he spent his entire adult life just talking and praising and telling people how great American democracy was and why it was so mm. good. Mm. And the unfortunate thing with him being assassinated is that I think that he never had a chance to write down his version of the war. Jefferson Davis was able to do that. Other people were able to do that. 
we we were robbed really of hearing more from him in terms of his love of country and why America is such um, the greatest land in the world. Hmm. So in that respect, I wish he would have lived because we would probably have much more uh, insight into how how in love with his country he was. Right. And to say nothing of the way in which Reconstruction would have proceeded uh, if it had been Abraham Lincoln leading that versus uh, his successor, Andrew Johnson. I want to make sure also, uh, because we are airing this the day before Thanksgiving Day, uh, to have you uh, take a moment to talk about uh, Abraham Lincoln's connection to the Thanksgiving Day holiday. Uh, it is not something that he invented in and of himself, but right. but uh, he played a really important role in, in, in what this day means to all of us. Well, he was the one, of course, that federalized it, but you're you're correct. He did not invent Thanksgiving. It had been celebrated uh, in a loose form of way um, in in American history. However, there were a series of editorials that had been penned by a woman by the name of Sarah Josepha Hale, which prompted a correspondence between her and the president, and she was urging him uh, to federalize it as a holiday. And he finally did on October 3rd, 1863, and pointed out that we would be celebrating on the fourth or final Thursday uh, of the month in November. So the original date was set as November 26, 1863. And it was, you know, when you read the proclamation itself, it's a lengthy document. It's not flippant. And it's not, it's really not a very um, happy document. It, It was a very serious document. And he points out the fact that we are in the middle of civil strife and in the midst of this, even though with the carnage and the death and all of those things that were very prominent on the minds of Americans, we also were celebrating the fact that we had good crop yields, we had uh, bountiful harvests, we had law in the land outside of the civil problem that we had with war. So there was, he, he identifies a number of things that we should be thankful for. And he says, you know, a few times in this, in this proclamation, he says, you know, no human counsel is responsible for any of it. You know, we, we can't take credit for any of it. Hmm. And he says, the reason we're in the midst of this civil conflict is because we have offended God and we have been perverse. And in the midst of God's anger, he has still uh, bestowed on us mercy. And that's part of this proclamation. And he says we should really, on this day, give thought to all of the widows, the orphans, the people who are mourning, and the people who are suffering as a result of the war. And it's, 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 it's a really a beautiful document with a lot of thought in it. But he says, you know, we can't take credit for anything. Hmm. We're here by God's grace. Wow. wow. So uh, a, a call for humility as well as gratitude. Absolutely. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Steve Rogstad, uh, an expert on Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, and uh, Steve Rogstad has been a frequent guest uh, on the morning show. In fact, uh, in a, on one memorable occasion that, uh, that uh, looms large in my memory, uh, 
on February 12th, 2009, which was... I remember it well. The 200th birthday of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we did 10 days devoted to Abraham Lincoln, uh, but on that birthday itself, it was Steve Rogstead in the guest chair to talk about uh, this extraordinary American. We are here today to talk about a brand new book that uh, Steve Rogstead has authored called Lincoln Among the Badgers, which explores... Uh, the numerous connections between both Mary and Abraham Lincoln and the state of Wisconsin. Steve Rogstead, uh, what prompted you to want to put this book together? And has this been a book a long time in the making, as they say? Yeah, it, it really has. I, I, I'm reaching an age in my life where I actually can sit down now and write which is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I've been able to write a series of articles and reviews and various things in, in Lincoln journals. And, and that's been very gratifying, but I have about four books in me and this is the first of a series of them. And they all deal with the Lincolns in Wisconsin. And the great thing is I live here. So I have to go too far to do whatever research I need to do. But the one book that I always wanted to do um, is Nobody had ever identified all of the Lincoln sites, the buildings that still remain that they were in, or the monuments, or the markers, or some of what I call the unusual doodads that we have peppered around the state that, that commemorate the Lincolns. And some of them are very heroic, and some of them are very good, and some of them are very cheesy, and but they've never been assembled in one spot. And my my goal always is I happen to love getting in a car and going and see some of the most unusual stuff that anybody would ever want to go and see. <laughs> We're all familiar with the real heroic and the, and the impressive things, but there's, and this is in every state, not just Wisconsin. I love seeing the unusual. Right. And I love trying to find out why in the world these things ended up being uh, installed or put up or erected. And, so I've done that for, for many, many states. But I, I found that what I had was a, a, a large uh, cache of material on the Lincolns in Wisconsin. And then every time a Lincoln book would come out, especially a biography, I would, I would realize once again, you know, Wisconsin is not represented. And when it is, most of what's in the book is wrong. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's just amazing to me that they were in this state uh, at first, I thought for almost my life, I thought it was two times for Lincoln and two times for Mary. And then we found out in 2012 that Mary did this Great Lakes boat trip up to the Apostle Islands. And so we actually know she was here three times. And I thought, geez, wouldn't it be wonderful? And I always wanted to put it into some book form where a family could grab my book and get in a car and say, today we're going to go here and we're going to see this thing or this building and maybe they want to read that about that thing on the car on their way there maybe they want to stand at that site and and read what that's about or maybe they want to do a little research beforehand but i've written this book not just for lincoln scholars the history is new so i take the history very seriously because i've got an entire nation of lincoln historians that will read every word i i say and like I say, when you're when you're writing about the most popular human being next to Jesus Christ, 
in terms of volume of literature, you, you better be spot on in all your assessments and your interpretations because I've got an entire audience out there that will tell me I'm full of prunes if I don't. <laughs> but I, I, you know, the book's not footnoted and that's intentional. I did not want it footnoted because Greg, when people pick up a book and they look and they think, geez, a third of the book is footnotes. This is much too scholarly for me. Mm. It's probably not my book. I don't want people to think that's footnoted. Mm. I also came up with an unusual cover and I, I can't take credit for the cover because I had two graphic artists working on this book. One was a professor of graphic art, but the girl that put it together, I mean, really made the book come alive was um, Alyssa, who uh, was a senior at Lakeland University this year. And um, one of her final uh, independent uh, projects for her degree was my book. Hmm. So this young girl was able to graduate with a book under her belt. <laughs> and I'm just so proud of that because that's a, it's a huge shot in the arm for her. And I made sure her picture and her bio was in my book as well, because it's as much her book, in my opinion, as it is mine. Uh, she made it come alive, but okay. I, I want it, I want it to be for the average person that'll pick up a book and say, you know, I, I think this could be a great deal of fun. Mm. I want people mm -hmm. to have fun with this book. And there's a, some tongue-in-cheek humor when I write about some of these things. And uh, it's not all that serious. And I think, I hope people will really enjoy it. I think it really is. It's a very approachable book. And, uh, and, and also, uh, it's, it's beautifully put together in, in terms of the visuals. So you tell us in the introduction, and we've already kind of touched on the fact that that, that there are five occasions in which Abraham and, and Mary Lincoln visited Wisconsin, but it's Abraham or Mary that they actually never right. visited together. They uh, never can you were just here explain together. in a nutshell why we never had the two of them visiting together? What was the nature of these visits? Well, the first one, Lincoln was here through no fault of his own. He, he came as a volunteer soldier in the Black War, and he was, he trampled, uh, north of Illinois and ended up going through Beloit, Janesville, Fort Atkinson, and ended up near Whitewater um, as, as a militia soldier. So that was his first, first time, and he's in his 20s. He doesn't come back until 1859, much later, a year before he's elected the president, because he was invited to speak to the Wisconsin State Fair in Milwaukee. And then he was also invited to speak to Beloit. And then he added on Janesville. They persuaded him to go to Janesville. So those three um, communities had him in 1859. He was married at that time, living in Springfield in the house. Um, and he eventually comes back to, uh, he left uh, Janesville, went back to Chicago before going back to Springfield. So it was a, it was a speaking gig. And it was the only address he ever gave on the subject of agriculture. Hmm. So that's really significant. Um, the one thing that I love in, in that is if you ever watch the Raymond Massey uh, motion picture, Abe Lincoln in Illinois, when he's leaving the train for, from Springfield to go to the White House, he ends up in this soliloquy by giving this, this story of an Eastern monarch. And I always laugh because everybody thinks, geez, what beautiful beautiful imagery and wording that he gave on this train before he left Springfield. Well, he didn't give it at the back of the train in Springfield at all. He gave it in Milwaukee and it was part of his address <laughs> in agriculture, but <laughs> nobody knows that, but I always get a big kick out of it when he yeah. did see. Yeah. Um, 
And then Mary, and those would be the only two times he was here. He came, you know, once he came back to Springfield, he was elected to the presidency and ends up the last four years of his life in Washington. Mary came here all after uh, her husband's assassination. So two years after um, he died, she came to Racine and spent 51 days in our town here in Racine, where I live. And the day that she left, I mean, when you look at the calendar, it was tight. The day that she left downtown Racine and went back to Chicago, the following day, she leaves on this Great Lakes um, river trip. We would call it a cruise today to go to the Apostle Islands for another two weeks. Then she comes back. And then um, five years later, she ends up coming to Waukesha. And now she has lost, you know, three of her four children. She's lost her husband. She had just lost a son um, just about a year, less than a year before. And so she's really completely alone. And she comes to Waukesha to investigate these wonderful, miraculous healing properties of the, the, the mineral waters there and spent the better part of the summer in Waukesha. And that really is the five times, but um, they're fascinating. They're fascinating trips when studied because they, 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 especially the ones with Mary Lincoln, because none of those have ever really been incorporated into the broader um, study of Mary Lincoln's life. Hmm. Something else that you explore uh, quite extensively in, in your book are uh, the numerous statues of the Lincolns that we find in uh, Wisconsin. And uh, first of all, I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to know what the total number is. I don't remember if you spell that out or not. But then, of course, we really want to spend some time with those statues that are close to home here. Uh, and of course, I'm especially interested in the intriguing statue of Lincoln that is on the campus of Carthage College where I teach. But before we get to all of that, uh, just give us a general overview of the statuary of Abraham Lincoln and or Mary Lincoln in the state of Wisconsin. How many statues are we talking about? And what would be called in the, in the world of art statues, we have nine. We have nine. The one that we have in Racine, I'll start with the, that one first. The, one of the two we have in Racine is the granite statue to Mary and Abraham Lincoln together, which is in East Park in front of Gateway Technical College on Main Street. That's unique for a couple of reasons. One, it's the only one ever made out of stone. The other ones are all bronze. Mm. Also, mm -hmm. the statue was the first of its kind when it was put up on July 4th, 1943, in that it was the very first statue or monument ever erected to a president and his wife anywhere in the world. It was the first monument ever erected to a first lady or Mary Todd Lincoln. And it was the first of pairing the Lincolns together in a grouping. So it really was the first of its kind for various reasons, multiple reasons. The ones to Lincoln in the state are, are, I find rather humorous in that we have, you know, nine statues to him, including the one where he's with Mary. And we only have two that are beardless. Meaning when Lincoln was here in 1832 and in 1859, it predated his growing a beard. He didn't grow the beard until he was running for the presidency. So he only had the beard the last four years of his life. And, and but, you can't probably see Lincoln without imagining him with the beard. 
And so when these statues went up, all but two of them show him with a beard. None of them commemorate what he did in Wisconsin. They were not to commemorate him in the Black Hawk War. There's no signage at any of them talking about his appearance at Milwaukee, Janesville, or Beloit. And on the one in Milwaukee in particular, by the War Memorial, he, he stands on this very, very large base of marble. And on all those panels, when you had the opportunity to call attention to what he did in Wisconsin, there's not a word about him being in Wisconsin or anything. So, but it's a beardless standing uh, image of him. But everything on the base talks about him as the great emancipator and the second inaugural, all of which would have made that he had the beard. So it's, it's ironic and rather humorous when you look at them critically because you, there's just nothing here in all of these monuments that commemorate his, his presence in Wisconsin. And, and as I point out in the book, those, that is with, um, that the, the honor goes to two bronze markers that are on in Wisconsin. One's affixed to Hanshin Hall in Beloit that was put up in 1911, mm -hmm. saying that he spoke in the building. And then another one is a marker at 13th and Wells on the Marquette campus that commemorates him speaking at the state fair. But those small bronze markers are not these heroic mm -hmm. monuments that we would think would commemorate him and what he did here. Right. And, right. and, and I think what you're, what you're essentially saying is these statues, as they appear, could be anywhere. I mean, they might as well be in Rhode Island or New Mexico or wherever because right. the statues in a sense, have no connection whatsoever to the state of Wisconsin. They're just uh, a, 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 an expression of, of, our, of our veneration of our 16th president, but, but they don't connect him to us in the way that they perhaps might have. And the one in Racine at East Park, now that statue is actually there because when Mary Lincoln stayed in Racine, she rested and walked around in East Park. But there's no signage in East Park or on the monument indicating that. Hmm. Remind our listeners, and you go through this in 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 uh, in, in quite a lot of detail. Uh, I mean, she did a couple of different things when she was in Racine, but it would seem that there was something that very specifically prompted that visit, and and would also help explain why she was especially in that particular neighborhood of Racine. Well, if if you look at her letters, and I and I'll, I'll also point out this, we only had um, five known letters um, written by Mary Lincoln from Congress Hall, the hotel in Racine, and in the last few years, four more have surfaced, and I was able to physically hold three of the four and photograph them for the book. So now, reading her letters from Racine were quite quite amazing, and the information in those letters. She was here, if you read her letters, because she speaks of investigating what we know today as the DeCoven Center, but which was then known as Racine College, which was a, a very prominent school of higher learning, and it was held in great respect nationwide. Its student body came even as far away as New York and various parts of the United States. She came here, according to her letters, to investigate it to see if she could put her youngest son, Thomas, or Tad, in the school. And that has been repeated and has become part of our, what we would call today, an urban legend. The problem is just simply doesn't hold any water. For the main reason that Tad Lincoln was completely illiterate at this time. Mm. And he mm. was already you know, 15 years old 
and he's he's illiterate, Craig, and we know that because Robert Lincoln, the eldest Lincoln's son, was receiving in 1866 letters from autograph seekers. You know, autograph collectors, it was kind of the rage, and they were writing to Robert saying, do you have a, a signature of your father? Um, I'd love to have signatures of everybody in your family. And he would supply them with documents with signatures on them. And he said in late 1866, he says, I'm unable to supply you with one of my youngest, you know, my younger brother Tad's because he cannot sign his name. And so to think that Mary would even remotely think she could bring him to Racine and put him at Racine College, where if you looked at the, the curriculum was, you know, accelerated math, geography, national botany. I mean, you know, all sorts of, of real strict, and, and it was a strict religious institution as well, Episcopalian, so he would have had to study theology, you know, for somebody that can't even sign his name. So it is a curious thing for me because it's an urban legend that it'll, it'll never die. It just won't die. Every time I speak somewhere in Racine, I always get the question, well, didn't Ted go to school here? I can I can say it 14 ways that he didn't, but you know it 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 will never <laughs> die. We'll always claim Tad Lincoln as a student. He never saw the campus. He, there's no evidence that he ever went there. She went there. She actually toured it in the company of Mary Doolittle, the wife of Senator James Doolittle, who's buried in Mount Cemetery, and she met James DeCoven. Um, she wasn't impressed with DeCoven. Um, a couple of references to him, you know, in his full Episcopal robes. And there was one quote attributed to her that she called him a suave Cassock Jesuit. Um, and she, and he equally evidently was not equally impressed having met the widow of Abraham Lincoln because he kept a rather meticulous journal and never even made mention of the fact that he had met the widow of Abraham Lincoln, the first lady of the land. So it's a curious aspect to the story there's much more to that story of her being here for 51 days but it's certainly one that um it's a just a curious aspect to the story and you have to wonder what mary was thinking why she even considered <laughs> racine college but it was probably recommended to her and maybe she was doing it as a favor right right it sure is interesting when one walks the grounds of decoven or for that matter just that beautiful neighborhood close to the lake and and imagine that Mary Todd Lincoln herself walked those streets. It's really, really something. While we're talking locally, um, before we get to Carthage, I'm eager to hear more about uh, the statue of Lincoln at Carthage. Um, th there are statues of, uh, other statues of Lincoln uh, close to home, including one that I know is especially close to your heart. And as a matter of fact, your book actually climaxes with the story of this particular statue of Abraham Lincoln uh, by one Albert Louis Van de Bergen. <laughs> and um, uh, explain the story behind this statue and uh, the memorable day that you were a part of and that I was a part of actually uh, not that long ago. It doesn't seem like that long ago. I think it was 1998, if I remember right, on Make a Difference Day. Well, the Vandenbergen statue, as you say, is kind of near and dear to me because um, I was trying to look for a project back in 1998 that I could do for Make a Difference Day in Racine. 
and I thought, well, the, the statue was green and, and, and it looked like it needed to be refurbished. And so I spent the better part of two years writing grants, learned how to write grants really quick. And I think I wrote 26 grants trying to find money. I had to raise about $12,000 and I eventually raised it, thank goodness. And uh, I brought in the people that maintain the statuary on Lincoln's tomb. And I brought them in from Missouri and they renovated the statue and made it look as it looks today. And we had a ceremony, you were there and uh, some other people, good friends of mine were there and we unveiled it and it just happened to be my daughter's fourth birthday and uh, she pulled the flag off of Lincoln that day. And uh, so we had a little ceremony. So uh, I put it in the book, you know, that's kind of my tip to my daughter, but I, it, it was a historical event in that that statue had renovated and restored and I, and I think that that's important for people to know that they may also have public statuary in their communities that are in need of restoration. And whether it's a Lincoln statue or any other monument for that matter, it really takes, um, you know, a lot of people with a lot of passion to say, hey, we, we want to have these things in the best possible shape and, and we can do those things. And Absolutely. you can succeed. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I know I sang something, but I, I, for the life of me, can't remember the, the patriotic song I sang. What I remember so vividly was, of course, the statue itself and the shovel that was part of that event. And you talk about that in your book as well. Explain well, this marvelous <laughs> artifact. I love my shovel. I think if my house was on fire and I had to run downstairs and grab something out of my Lincoln room and grab the shovel in one hand and probably something else in the other hand and run. But I love the shovel. Well, the, the story is William Horlick of Horlick Mulch, if you're familiar with that name. William Horlick was our mayor and was given the opportunity to, and he was the largest donor to putting up that statue uh, in 1923. So in, uh, in the fall of 23, they they had called a group of people together that were on the committee for putting up the statue and they had this shovel made and there's a shield on the shovel that talks about, you know, on this plot of ground, on this date, um, you know, William Horlick unearthed this plot of dirt that we're going to put the statue up within the next, you know, year. And there was a group photograph taken of Horlick holding the shovel. And, oh, you know, you, you look at everybody and look at Dapper in their suits. And it's, it's a really wonderful photograph. There's only two photographs taken, I think, two or three. And um, anyway, um, the statue goes up um, by North. It's on Northwestern Avenue and we're seen by the old Lincoln School. And we, the shovel basically disappears from history. It was given to William Horlick, obviously. It's his name on his shovel. And I had seen the photograph. Well, I, I was just about at the end of that project in 1998, and I received a phone call from a gentleman who said, I have something that I think belongs to you. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And he had me come out to his home, and he said, um, I want to show you something. And he goes over by the fireplace, and he pulls his shovel and shows it to me, and he goes, read the inscription on the shield. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it that this commemorative shovel with this sterling silver shield on it, you know, talking about what happened, is, is it next to this gentleman's fireplace out in Racine County. And he said, you know, I, I bought a house one time 
not the house he was in, but he had bought another house and he, he said, you know, there was nothing left. The previous owners left nothing except this shovel in the garage. And I've kept the shovel all these years and now I'm in this house and I've been using it for 20 years to scoop ashes out of my fireplace. And he says, you know, I, I think it rightfully deserves to be your property for what you're doing for the statue. And he gave it to me. Wow. There it stands, and I'm just I'm thrilled to have this shovel. So when I did the book, I thought, well, people have to see this shovel. They have to see this shovel. Absolutely. <laughs> and you give us the inscription on it, too, which is up by the, the handle, used by William Horlick Sr. on the evening of Tuesday, June 26, 1923, 7.30 p.m., for breaking the ground for the statue of Abraham Lincoln to be erected corner state and Hamilton streets by the citizens of the ninth ward city of Racine, Wisconsin. There it is yeah. in all there its it glory. For those of you just yes. joining us, I'm speaking with Steve Rogstead. We're talking about his book just published called Lincoln Among the Badgers, rediscovering sites associated with Abraham and Mary Lincoln in Wisconsin. I can't wait any longer. I am so glad that you go into the detail that you do about the uh, statue of Abraham Lincoln that is on the campus of Carthage College in Kenosha, where I uh, am a member of the faculty. And um, it is a uh, statue of actually two figures, and it is titled A Learning Moment. Um, and you go into extensive detail about its design by one uh, Michael Martino. Um, tell our listeners what you think is most uh, interesting about this particular set of statues. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think, first off, I, I've met Michael Martino. I've had him at my house back at the time that they were installing those. I was lucky enough to be out there the day of installation, and I photographed them being installed. That predated the dedication. But I was able to sit down and talk to Michael Martino in my home and interview him. And... You know, he's an artist out of lacrosse and he hadn't really done a Lincoln statue. So he was kind of bringing himself up to speed on what he would what he would do. And in the book, he was he's for, he gave me all of his conceptual drawings uh, associated with that project. I have them all in my house now and um, I, I put those in the book as well. But that statue is unique. It, it's unique for a couple. Why is it there? Well, you have to follow the history of the institution. It started off in Illinois, in uh, Springfield, really, became Illinois State University. And there was no public schooling when the Lincolns lived there. So they had to find private tutors for their children. And they had this Illinois State University that only Robert went to. It would have been he had to have succeeded enough with private tutors to qualify to go there. It was the best Springfield had to offer. So we think of Illinois State University and we think this has to be some creme a la creme uh, educational institution in the, in the heart of uh, Prairie Land down there. Well, it, it wasn't because when uh, Robert, who was a little full of himself as a young man, decided to go to Harvard, he failed 15 of the 16 entrance examinations because of the education he did not receive at Illinois State University and ended up having to go to Phillips Exeter Academy uh, in New Hampshire for a year before he went to Harvard to improve his scholastics. But after, you know, Lincoln, uh, after Robert Lincoln went there, he was an alumni. 
And his good friend, John Hay, who ends up becoming Lincoln's private secretary, went there and was an alumni. And eventually, all, always, as you know, due to economic reasons, they pulled out of Springfield and they went eventually to another uh, town in Illinois called Carthage <laughs> and changed its name to, you know, Carthage College, really. And then it moved up to Kenosha again for financial reasons. So we actually have an institution in Kenosha that was Illinois State University where Robert Lincoln and John Hay were alumni. Now, that's fascinating that they stuck Abraham Lincoln on as a, as a trustee when he was elected to the presidency because, of course, you always want to have a president on your board of trustees, even if it's only a name. He only served one year. But um, so here we have this now this pairing of Lincoln, who, was, who never went there and was only attached by name, um, standing at Carthage College. And we have John Hay, who was also an, an alumni of it. And of course, it's, it's Lincoln in the White House and John Hay is his secretary. And they're in the White House and that's the setting for the grouping. And according to Michael, he, he, he really wanted it to look like they're conducting some business and then Lincoln erupts into one of his wild stories or he decides to tell one of his humorous anecdotes to prove a point or make a point. And he's in the process of this wonderful story. You can see the animation on Lincoln's face. It's one of the only statues states where Lincoln smiles. I mean, this is, this is big stuff. You never see Lincoln smiling, brilliant photographs, but he's been able to put it into a bronze statue. And he's telling this wonderful story. And Hay has put down his pen and his notebook and has ceased taking notes and is enjoying immensely the story of his boss. And Michael said, that's exactly what I call learning moments that, you know, you can sit in a classroom and listen to a professor and take notes and learn. And, but then there are those moments where the professor goes off on some seemingly irrelevant tangent and you learn more out of the tangent than you do out of the course curriculum. And, and that really is the point of what that grouping is supposed to, supposed to tell. The other, the other mm -hmm. aspect to it, though, that I wanted to bring up was, and I think it's a very moving um, story, is that just weeks before John Hay dies, he is recording in his diary that he has this dream. You know, John Hay went on and had a very illustrious career in American politics. He was Secretary of State. You know, he was a force to be reckoned with in American politics for many, many years. He's now an old man. He's in ill health and his end is coming. And he has this dream. He went through five presidential administrations in some capacity, had some role in all of them. And not much. But he has this dream, and he's now going to the White House, which wouldn't be surprising in his dream, except the man that he meets is Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and Lincoln meets him and, and says, you know, I know you're in ill health, and I'm sorry about that. And he said Lincoln was very sympathetic to the fact that I had been ill. And he says, I only have a couple letters for you to, you know, take care of for me. And uh, he says, I was very gratified that I could do that for him. And he says, I took care of these few pieces of correspondence for him. And he says, and then I left. And he goes, I woke up. And he says, you know, it wasn't surprising to me that I would see Lincoln. 
but he says the whole the whole dream of of seeing him again uh, just it was so melancholy and i think it really speaks to the affection that these two men had for one another you know lincoln was like a surrogate father for john hay you know there was differences about 30 years difference in age uh and lincoln loved his secretaries they lived in the white house down the hall from him and, and hay and, and the other uh, secretary john nicolay did this wonderful 10 volume life of lincoln in 1890 i mean lincoln occupied those two men's lives for almost their entire lives hmm. it's hard for us to believe today how saturated people are with lincoln these these two young men i mean the one had a say the entire time he was in the white house working for lincoln and never got married yeah, you know, he was like he was married to Lincoln. He was married to his job. He kept his fiance on hold forever, seemingly. And their lives were put on hold because of their love for the man. And John Hay would write that Lincoln was the greatest character since Christ. Now, how many people would say that about somebody that they lived with and, and knew every particle of their being, the food they ate, the way they dressed, their manner of speaking. You saw them at their worst moments. You saw them at their best moments. You saw them when they were troubled. You saw them when they were happy. I mean, to, to live with somebody and then say at their final assessment, he's the greatest character since Christ. That's heavy. <laughs> that says a lot. And you, you finish out this chapter talking about these, uh, this statue at Carthage by relaying this story of the dream that uh, John Hay had uh, in 1915, not long before he, he died. And you write uh, at the end, as we ponder this magnificent depiction of Lincoln and his secretary, both connected with Carthage College, are we seeing just a learning moment between master and pupil, or are we possibly also getting a glimpse into John Hay's dream? when the aging politician became a young man again and enjoyed a brief reunion with his good friend in the White House. And I, I love yeah. the fact that you said something about what John Hay looks like in this statue. I think sometimes we are so drawn to the figure of Lincoln that we don't pay enough attention to John Hay and the wonderful way that he is depicted, the look on his face. He right. is captivated by whatever it is that Lincoln is saying to him. Uh, that's a very important part of this, this statue's power. And I want to mention, too, that your chapter also includes not just sketches, but even clay miniatures that depict uh, some of the sort of early variants or early possibilities in terms of how this would exactly take shape. I think one really appreciates the final product when you realize the sort of limitless numbers of, of other possibilities that were weighed and eventually discarded in favor of what what is ultimately depicted there do you agree i agree and I, I again i think if you're an artist you do look at this chapter you think oh you know i can see what michael was struggling with or you know working his way through if you're a historian you find it interesting i find the uh the sketches and the in the line drawings that he did you see this massive size elliptical that these were he eventually uh, it, no, it was adopted into a much more smaller and intimate environment. But this was a massive, you know, um, elliptical, almost an amphitheater type of setting that he initially thought of putting them in. And it turns out to be something quite different. But it is fascinating. And uh, 
you know, you go from the sketches to the clay models to the finished product, and you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're lucky. We're lucky. One, we have the sketches. Two, we have the models because that's not always available. Absolutely. So the book really tries to show it tries to show progression. And in some of the photographs, especially in the in the chapter on Waukesha, I like to show how these landscapes where we had buildings and people you know, that the Lincolns were in have changed. Hmm. And now we have nothing left in Waukesha. And we see urban development come in and you see the Hubbard home where Mary Lincoln stayed just get tore down in the 1980s. And so that's gone as well. So, you know, these landscapes have changed longer familiar to the people of this generation. And, and it's at best sometimes very ambiguous trying to envision how this land looked at that time, the topography and everything. Absolutely. Your book goes on to describe uh, all kinds of different statues in, 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 in great detail and other details about their visits and other people in Wisconsin who knew the Lincolns. And, uh, and there are some quirky, interesting things that we'll leave for our listeners to explore for themselves, including the world's largest penny, <laughs> which, of course, is emblazoned yeah. with the face of Abraham Lincoln that people can read about. And I also want to mention that there's a lovely moment in the acknowledgments, the lengthy acknowledgments that really show us how many people are responsible uh, for this book, along with you, of course, as the author. And you, uh, you also thank your wife, Diane, uh, saying uh, that research and writing are mostly solitary activities and not group sports or team endeavors. It very often requires hours, days, weeks, and months alone in isolated environments to study, concentrate, and write. My best writing is performed in absolute silence within the friendly confines of my Lincoln room, down in the cavern of my house, segregated from everything and everybody. It is within this environment that I have missed appointments, skipped meals, forgot to pick up children, not realized it was no longer daylight, unknowingly missed almost entire days, not participated in activities and events to which I had been invited and neglected family and friends. She has overlooked the times when I was away from home to investigate or photograph some remote building or marker. She has tolerated my little independent side trips on family vacations to visit small museums and meet people who could assist me with my research. Through all of this, she has good-naturedly appeared enthralled whenever I have reappeared to perform some moment of rapture by telling her some singular Lincoln story. I really appreciate that that's in the acknowledgments because it really takes us inside the experience that you have had as a Lincoln scholar all of these years and specifically in putting this wonderful book together. I loved it start to finish. Lincoln Among the Badgers, Rediscovering Sites Associated with Abraham and Mary Lincoln in Wisconsin. Steve Rogstead, congratulations on an absolutely marvelous book and thanks for being part of the morning show and I look forward to our next video. I, I can't tell you what a pleasure it always is coming on your show and uh, um, just to come in and talk about uh, Lincoln and not so much the book because it's my book it looks a little self-serving but to come on and talk about it I, I it's always a thrill for me and uh, I hope the listeners will uh, enjoy the book I think they will